I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I just wanted to encourage you all to watch some of my IG Live videos on Instagram. On Instagram, my accounts are at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. But in case I haven't told you, which it occurred to me that maybe I haven't, on Instagram every day at 11 o'clock Eastern time, I interview authors live from my at Zibby Owens account. And to watch it, you just have to open up Instagram. And if you're following me when I'm live, it'll show up on the upper left of your screen in the story section and it'll say live and there'll be a little red circle. So every day, Monday to Friday, I do an IG live show check it out. I do one to four authors a week. Sometimes the shows become these podcasts. And I also do one on Sundays at two with my husband, Kyle. um, And we talk about step parenting and life and all the rest. So if you haven't watched an IG Live, please do. And also I have a virtual book club that I hope you know about. This is all on my website, by the way, zibbyowens.com. But check out my virtual book club, which is through a site called Book Clubs, with a Z, B-O-O-K-C-L-U-B-Z.com. And no, I didn't make that up after my name, but actually it just worked out perfectly. So go to bookclubs.com, and I'm actually the featured book club on their homepage. So you can just click, and you're invited to sign up. Um, I have amazing guests every week, and that meets Tuesdays at 2 p.m., Uh, Eastern Time via Zoom. So please don't miss out on all these other offerings for all of you guys who are loyal listeners to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And always feel free to check out my website at zibbyowens.com to find out what I'm up to and what else you can do. Oh, and also sign up for my newsletter. On In my newsletter every week, I give updates on the latest, the book recommendations, all my podcasts, all my IG lives, my book club, and any other fun information, um, plus usually some list or article or something that I think would be helpful. So um, also sign up for my mailing list if you get a chance. Okay, that's enough for me. Now go listen to this episode. Today's episode has been sponsored by Stylist. I'd love to tell you more about Stylist because it's the newest and easiest way to shop via text. And to be honest, at first I was a little scared to try it, but once I did it, it's become like the most amazing thing ever. You literally take a picture of something and just text it. So I did it with a light bulb from the dining room that I have no idea what it was. And I took a picture of it and they figured it out. They searched it, they sent me the link to it, and then they sent me the whole item um, all via text. So it's really fantastic. Membership is only $9.99 a month, $9.99. The first month is free. You can cancel at any time. When you sign up with my referral code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you get one free book. So to sign up, just text Zibby to, these are numbers you're going to text, so get ready, 926-848- and text Zibby with a capital Z. Um, and Or you can sign up on their website, stylelust, S-T-Y-L-U-S-T dot com. And your first book can be free up to $50, which is so great. So go get yourself a free book and try out Stylist. My friend from business school, um, Melissa Bridgeford, is the one who founded this company. And I'm so thrilled to support her. And it's so nice that she's giving away $50 worth of a book for everybody. So um, I hope you love it. And I hope it saves you time because it's ended up sending me so much time now that I'm just clicking pictures of random snacks and then they show up at my door because they've helped me order it. So please try out Stylist. Again, it's text to number 926-848 and text Zibby, capital Z, or go to stylist.com and try it out and let me know what you think. 
I had the privilege of interviewing the legendary author Judith Viorst as part of the Women on the Move three-part series from the Stryker Center at Temple Emanuel, which I just finished. This was the third. Taffy Bradesser Ackner was the second, and Laura Zygman was the first, both of whom you should go listen to their podcasts as well. Judith Viorst is basically who I want to be when I grow up. She has been writing for decades and just doesn't stop and is amazing. She wrote Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day in 1972, which has sold over 2 million copies and, of course, has become a movie from Disney. Recently, she has also written many books for adults about each decade, books from your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up till now, when she wrote Nearing 90, which is a fantastic book of poems. She's written a bazillion books for kids. She's written a best-selling book for grown-ups called Necessary Losses and many other nonfiction psychology books like Grown-Up Marriage, Imperfect Control, Nine Books of Poetry, like When Did I Stop Being 20? And she was a former newspaper columnist and even wrote a musical called Love and Shrimp. She's hilarious and amazing. And I have to say, I did this interview and it was more of a conversation. And towards the end of it, I actually choked up when we were talking about the legacy that she wanted to leave. There were 540 people at the webinar when I did this. And when I hung up, my mother was one of the people at the webinar and she called me right after. And we both were on the phone and we cried because it was so moving and just so poignant. Not It, it wasn't sad. It was just... I don't know, really, really special. So I hope that you'll find it as special as I did. I think this is one of my favorite interviews slash conversations that I've ever done. So please enjoy. Hello. Hi, Judith. So nice to be connected with you. Nice to meet you. And so not only have I, like I'm sure so many other people, a fan of Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day and all of your amazing children's books, but having read Nearly 90, you are now one of my favorite people, I think, Anywhere. <laughs> this is the best book of wow. poems, thoughts, reflections. I'm serious. This is like, I, if you could make a book to fall in love with another person as a friend, this is like the book. <laughs> well, it's so sweet of you. Thank you. We are much too young to even understand the book, but I'm happy that you like it. Oh, I feel like I, well, you know what? That's one of the things that I think is great is that it's so universal and the things that you talk about in the book are things that anybody at any age can relate to. Would you mind if I read like a snippet or two just to oh, highlight please. what I mean? Is that please okay? Do. Sure. Okay. okay, so this was one of my favorites. It's called Not Especially Spiritual. And for people who haven't seen Nearing 90 yet, the whole book is illustrations and poem-like little thoughts as if Alexander and, and co. had grown up. <laughs> And this one is called Not Especially Spiritual. And by the way, Judy, you deal with things like death, aging, illness, friendship, all these, you know, marital strife, everything you deal with on the page is in a refreshing, fun, sense of humor way that just makes you look at things better. So anyway, here's my one of my favorites. When my oldest friend Phyllis was dying, I went to visit her holding her hand as I sat by her hospice bed. Is there anything final, I asked, that we should be talking about? Probably not, she answered, shaking her head. Why don't we just forget about final anythings and count the number of guys we've slept with instead? So we laughed, sighed, cringed, and counted our way up to how many? None of your business. So we were done. Not especially spiritual, but such fun. That's so great. True story. I went to visit my friend Phyllis when she was dying. And 
actually, I sort of got into bed with her so I could sort of give her a final hug. And then we decided that we didn't have any cosmic issues to discuss. So we went right for the deeply personal and a few laughs. Oh, my gosh. Here's one more at the Japanese restaurant. And then I want to ask you, actually, this one's pretty funny, too, and a little shorter. So let me read this one called Man Mowing the Grass. Maybe you haven't noticed that bare-chested fellow, that flat-bellied, slim-waisted fellow mowing the grass, the one with the black curly hair and the tattooed shoulder and the low-slung blue jeans lovingly molding his ass. He's bobbing his head to the music that streams through his earbuds. He's mouthing the words to some seethingly sensual song. You think I'm out here on the porch just reading my novel? You are so wrong. (laughs) It's just so funny. I mean, these are great. They're like... Also, that was it was it was addressed to a very specific idea. But, you know, when I think about some of the skills that come in handy as you get older or old, it is that old business of paying attention to the world that you're in right here and right now, looking at what is in your life, noticing. And then I wanted to add that even if you're pushing 90, you're interested viewings are not limited to pussy cats and rainbows and cute little babies. They could also be still at my age, very interested in a guy mowing the grass. <laughs> I think that there are all these preconceptions in our society. And tell me what you think about this, that once you hit a certain age, you're not interested in all those things like cute guys mowing the lawn or even sex, which you talk about here with regard to your husband and all these things like weight, worrying about your weight, which I wouldn't talk about this passage too. And yet, why does anyone think that just because a few years have passed that these issues have gone away or that they're not highly relevant? So what do you think about this sort of almost marginalization of women's needs and feelings and everything as as we all get older? Well, I I think there is a tendency to put people in categories you're a young mommy and you have certain qualities. You're a middle-aged person. You've got a middle-aged crisis. And when you're old, forget about it. So I think it just simplifies viewing for people to categorize others and say, okay, got that one understood and nailed. Well, let's talk about, can we talk about eating? Because this is like a topic I love to talk about because eating and sort of weight and all of that is something that that really never sort of ends. And you wrote this one last one and I won't read any more. So I won't give away any more of the book, but this poem is called, or I don't know if you would even call it a poem, but I'll call it a poem. I should be over this by now. Though the state of the world, the well-being of my children and whether my husband and I are doing okay, determine how contented I'm feeling on a given day. So I'm ashamed to admit does how much I weigh. I surely should be over this by now, considering that I'm a woman who holds decent values on matters like peace and justice and human rights, and therefore should not be obsessing over the utterly trivial fact that my thighs are straining against the seams of my tights, which they wouldn't if I weighed what I wanted to weigh. I certainly should be over this by now, considering that I'm a woman of some substance, acquainted with symphonies, sonnets, and Socrates, and therefore shouldn't be troubled by the inconsequential fact that my stomach tends to obscure a clear view of my knees, which it wouldn't if I weighed what I wanted to weigh. I definitely should be over this by now, but I'm still denying myself the pleasures of eating. I'm still pureeing potions of yogurt and kale. I'm still abjuring chocolate, except when I'm cheating. I'm still buying every damn diet book that's for sale. And I'm still getting up pulse racing every morning to read the day's verdicts on my bathroom scale when I really should be over this by now. Okay, talk to me about this. (laughs) Well, 
the sad the sad fact is that I think I have had a poem about weight starting with my first book of poetry and going right on. It, se- it seemed to me that at a certain point, and I've talked about this with women friends, I'm not the only one, we say, well, when are we going to throw in the towel? When are we just going to stop worrying about our weight and you know whether we're dressed in a chic fashion? And then I was, I was told about a friend of mine's aunt, 103, this aunt, every morning, every morning she got on the scale and if she weighed more than 118, she went on a diet. She's 103. And I realized it never will end. It's not going to end. <laughs> so how do you how do you deal with it? How do you I mean, are you do you really do you do things like that? Do you feel like there's a should it come to an end? Should it should women give up at some point and say whatever? Well, I don't want it to. I enjoy not being overweight. I enjoy buying pretty clothes. I put on eyeliner even in this COVID uh, quarantine that I'm living in. And even if I didn't have a cute husband living with me, I still put on eyeliner. So it's for myself, my sense of myself, the fun of dressing up. And as long as I'm interested in a few other things about the world that are a little larger in spirit than how much I weigh and what's a good eyeliner, I think I'm allowed that indulgence. I think eyeliner, I think eyeliner is a great thing. I mean, sometimes just dressing better and taking a shower and getting all ready, they can really affect your mood, I think. So I think that to think that a whole class of people, a whole group of women would give up, that it would affect their mood and it would affect an entire generation, I think. I agree. Absolutely. Several years ago, I have a 96-year-old grandmother who, you know, every time we're at dinner says, oh, I shouldn't eat that cake. I'm like, Goggy, just just go for the cake. What are you waiting for? You know, why not? So I ended up doing this little survey of all the women in her nursing home to find out, like, does this end? And you know what? You're, to your point, it doesn't. Most of the women were still weighing themselves every day, worrying about what they were eating. I couldn't believe it. So I don't know. I don't know what bigger message this is other than maybe there's, if you can't get over your issues when you're younger, you're not, time alone will not solve them. I think that's probably a wise conclusion for some of them. <laughs> there is still some room for improvement. I, I still have these fantasies that someday I'll still speak French and play the piano. It's getting a little late for that, but I'm holding on to my fantasies. <laughs> So you have been a prolific author for decades that you've documented in detail of how you feel about yourself and the world all the way through. And you've written so many things that are just in the canon of children's books and everything else. How do you do it? How do you stay relevant? What What is it about you that makes you see the world in this way and write about it in such a universal, sort of funny right way like how do you how do you do it <laughs> what's the secret <laughs> well we start out with the fact that I always always wanted to be a writer other people wanted to be Shirley Temple or uh, maybe Amelia Earhart I only always wanted to be a writer and I started writing and sending out stuff when I was seven years old to my mother's women's magazines every poem had a dead body in it. My first poem was an ode to my mother and father, alive and well and quite irritated. And then I went on to dead soldiers, dead dogs. I killed off an entire family. 
I realized it took me a while to realize that my belief that a poem wasn't a poem unless it had a corpse in it came from my mother's favorite poem often recited, Annabelle Lee. You probably know in the sepulcher down by the sea, the, the beautiful Annabelle Lee dead at a very early age. And I always maintain, and really not kidding when I say this, that I developed my uh, sense of humor about how I looked at the world after I got married, because there are so many options in marriage where the two choices are homicide or laughter. I might as well laugh. <laughs> you even you said this in one of your poems from the 1930s that you know that you're in your 30s because when someone doesn't call you back and you think maybe they're dead or maybe they didn't call you back, you hope that they're dead. <laughs> that was specifically my husband I was referring to. I thought that if he was either having an affair or lying dead in the middle of the street, I would always hope he was dead. Wouldn't anybody? <laughs> Wait, we'll go back. So you started writing when you were seven and sending things out. When did it become a career for you? How fast? And like, what very, was the... Very slowly, very slowly. I was quite a late bloomer. I came to New York hoping to get a job in publishing. And then immediately afterwards, they would discover, like, oh, my God, they have this brilliant writer right on the premises. But I didn't know shorthand. I didn't really type very well. So my, my first job wound up being a model in the garment district. And we're not talking high fashion. We're talking the garment district where I modeled waterproof silk shantung dresses. Their waterproofness demonstrated by people throwing water on me. They <laughs> see, see it. It doesn't stain. I found it very humiliating to be a garment district model. So I used to show up with those hat boxes that models carried. And in my hat box was a copy of the Brothers Karamazov, which I read between showings to demonstrate to the world that I was a far, far finer person. Then I got sick of having water thrown at me and I learned shorthand and typing and went to work in the publishing business as a secretary. Uh, after a while, I got a job editing children's books. A friend of mine at one of the publishing houses I worked at shoved me into a phone book and said, there's a job available now, call. Thank you, Priscilla Tucker. You've changed my life. And after the uh, phone call and after the children's book editing for three years, I got married and moved to Washington, D.C., where my husband worked for the Washington Post. Got a job editing science books because I was a editor. These things have a certain inevitability about them when you look forward, not 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 when you and one day, somebody who was supposed to write a book about the NASA space program couldn't do it. And they asked me to do it. I went home sobbing to my husband and said, I want to write all my life. They're giving me a chance to write a book. And it's about space. And I don't even know where space is. And <laughs> spoken, like a, spoken like a true journalist, he said, honey, say yes. We'll figure out where space is. And I did. <laughs> and. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, and again, this sort of inexorable story because I was, I, I started writing science books and I was with a, with a lot of hard work and determination. I, I had no, no skills in science at all and, or knowledge. I'm the only person I think in the history of my college when my zoology class, I had to be issued a second frog for dissection because I had so badly mutilated the first one. So I was not like your best science person. 
Well, because I was writing science books, the New York Herald Tribune, then a very good paper in New York, was looking for a stringer to cover Washington society. And they said, well, she, she writes. So they gave me that job. And because I had that job, I was in contact with people from the newspaper, one of whom was putting out a sample copy of New York magazine. They were putting out a sample copy of it. And so I had started writing these little funny poems. I sent them to this editor and he read them. And all of a sudden I had a new life. They published 10 of my poems in New York Magazine for the next decade or so. They made me their house poet. And all of a sudden, all my dreams had come true like a miracle. It was, I mean, I was beside myself. If I walked down the street and somebody said what time it is, I said my poems had just gotten published in New York Magazine. It was a life changer. Wow. And were your poems on a whole range of topics or did they address like the, the funniness of day-to-day life or what, what was it? What were those like? Uh, it was a funniness of day-to-day life. I, the poems were about a nice Jewish girl from the suburbs of New Jersey who had moved to Greenwich Village to live a life of wicked, wild abandon with her mother calling her once a day to say, don't. Whatever <laughs> it is you're thinking of doing, darling, don't. And so I, I wrote about this pull between this wish to be this swinging girl and a very strong connection to my Jewish mother and father and my Jewish roots. So I didn't get, I didn't get into as much trouble as I, as I had hoped to. And then at what point in your career did you write Alexander? Well, that was, a, I, you know, I was still single. Milton came into my life by calling me at one o'clock in the morning as he was passing through. New York saying, do you happen to be awake? Uh, Only Milton would say, do you happen to be awake at one o'clock in the morning? But nevertheless, it worked. And I married him, moved to Washington, D.C., where he was working for the Post and had three children. Alexander was the youngest of my three children. And Alexander Alexander had more bad days than most people. He uh, He's a very graceful, athletic guy now, but as a little boy, I have to say it was something of a clutch. And he's the only person I knew who came limping home, limping home from school. I killed my knee. I killed my knee. And I said, poor baby. Soccer? He said, no, story time. He wriggled so much during story time, he fell off his chair and got a knee injury. So he had more than his share of bad days. I wrote this book to cheer him up. He was very annoyed. He thought I should have given it to Anthony, his bigger brother, or... Nick, his middle brother, and I was giving him the bad day. I offered to change the name to Stanley on the Terrible Horrible. But in my one of my major mommy manipulation moves, I said, it won't be in great big letters. The name Alexander won't be in great big letters on the cover of the book. So he said, keep it Alexander. Wow. How does he feel about that now? I think he's quite pleased with it now. Yes. <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> And then how did it feel so many years later having it made into a movie? Well, I, you know, I was, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. lots of people, lots and lots of people for decades trying to make it into a movie. And I think, I think Disney did a quite decent job. It's very different from my book in, in some ways. 
but it does have the spirit of the terrible horrible. It was our kids went to a viewing of it and they gave it an eight out of ten, which I thought was pretty good for three very critical kids. <laughs> <laughs> and now do your grandchildren just read all your books all the time? I mean, are they do they recognize how special it is that you're their grandmother? I don't know if that's ever really possible, but I don't know. I these Grandmothers are of interest for, you know, what are we having for dinner tonight? Or let's, you know, let's go play with the dolls or let's build card houses. It's very hard to impress children and grandmothers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think they're pleased, but, I, you know, that's not who I am to them. Um, Juju is what they call me. So <laughs> that's, who I, that's who I am to them. So when Alexander came out, I know it has this long history. Was it an instant bestseller? And what did it feel like then to have such a successful book? And where? And then how did it affect all the other books that you ended up writing for kids? Well, actually, Alexander was initially turned down. The publisher I had had for my first two children's books turned it down. And then somebody else took it and then and then over time it turned into this very very major success of a book and my quite mature response to the publishers who turned it down was something like yeah 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 <laughs> i'm sure many authors can relate to that feeling of <laughs> wanting to show the ones who rejected them their, you know, forthcoming success. But, <laughs> and then what, how did you start writing these? How did you start writing these collections of poems? Cause I know you have one for the last, what, 60 years or so. Tell me about yeah. that theory. Well, while I was writing my science books, I was also sort of looking around and writing about my life and, and thinking about how I had gotten from Maplewood, New Jersey to Greenwich Village to marriage and, and was sitting amidst piles of unfolded laundry thinking about my life. And so I started just talking about the girl I had been before I'd gotten married and then the woman I became as a result of marriage. And, and I started out, I mean, it's hard to be hip over 30. It was really about the collisions between, you know, expectation and, and reality. I mean, you think, you know, you're going to wear a filmy peignoir at the breakfast table and talk about, you know, the major issues of the day. And, you know, you've got a screaming baby spit up on your filmy peignoir, which is probably a planned dirty bathrobe. And you're, you know, and, and your conversations are more like, what's a comfortable room temperature? Or what's a safe speed on the New Jersey turnpike? It's not these lofty issues. And after sort of sighing over the dreariness of dailiness, you start moving a little slowly by slowly into uh, the preciousness of dailiness while still reserving your right to bitch and moan about anything. Having chronicled all the different decades, what is like the core of each one if you if you had one like I'm in my 40s I'm 43 like do you remember like in that okay. decade like what is like the thing that just distinguishes it and I read like you know, the little snippets from each of your books but or what is the thing that changes the most over time or changes the least well I think that I think there are different issues I, th I think the 30s one when married and children is dealing with the collision between expectation and reality I found my 40s, I'm sorry to say this to you, 
my very hardest decade. In the 40s, I realized that there were doors that were going to be closed to me forever. You know, it, it wasn't like an open-ended world. I was never going to be a ballerina, a tennis star, a TV star, the woman for whom Paul Newman finally left Joanne. And that even if I never got on a plane for the rest of my life, I was going to die someday. And these were tough truths to absorb. And the interesting thing was I used to go around giving talks and I would talk about the 40s and I would say what I just said to you. And every single time somebody from the audience would come up to me afterwards and she said, honey, wait till you get to your 50s. It gets so much better. So I pass that on to you. (laughs) Interesting. And were the 50s better? Absolutely. The 50s are when you've done a certain amount of grieving for the things that you're never going to be and never going to do. And you start focusing more on what you're good at, what, what your abilities are, what makes you happy and feel competent and give something to the larger world. You're not as self-centered as you used to be. You're not as, you know, you're not as self-pitying as you used to be. You're not as dumb as you used to be. <laughs> And it's a decade of really feeling your powers and and taking note of what's gained instead of what's lost. Hmm. Let's keep going. How about 60s? <laughs> so just in the 50s, just just when you when you think you got it all nailed down. OK, I'm together. I'm this whole wonderful person. You know, new stuff comes up. I mean, all of a sudden um, you're a senior citizen. You're a grandmother, and you start thinking, is, is this it? Medicare payments, early bird special, certain discounts of, uh, because of your old age. And you, you, start, you start feeling as if the world is trying to make you an old person. And that's your struggle to say, no, you know, I'm still going to, I'm still going to be me. I'm still going to find things that I care about and do. But, you know, Senior citizen is what you get to be when you're 65, and you may not like that phrase, and you and you may feel yourself being defined by it more than you feel that's who you are. So the 60s is a little rest, wrestling match. You know, I, I have a poem in there. I've, you know, I've, I've reached the stage where all my doctors are older than I am. You know, I've, I've, I've reached the stage when I'm, you know, I'm discussing uh, wills more than I'm discussing proofs. You know, a lot of... I, the conversations alter, but your soul doesn't have to alter, and you can strive to overcome the uh, trap of senior citizen all over. <laughs> How about 70s? We'll do 70s and 80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, by that time, I, I think you start sort of sorting out uh, who you specifically are and probably are going to be. And one of the things that that I noticed, I noticed, you know, the women I knew were very, very busy women jugg- juggling children and careers. And those later, those later decades, everybody, every single woman I knew, first of all, they were all doing exercise. They were all doing exercise. But the other thing that they were doing, everybody was doing some kind of volunteer work. Everybody, the rush of racing around slowing down enough, they were able to give themselves the time to find work that engaged the larger world. 
know, to, to, you know, to, to live in insular world uninvested in the larger community cheats not just the community, but, but your, yourself. It's a broken world. It's a difficult world. It's a suffering world. And every single woman I know is trying to do something to make it a little better. And that is one of the sweet and quite admirable qualities of later life. And in your 90s, you talk about so many things, but one of the things you touch on is your feelings about mortality and how in this decade, you're still not thrilled about it, you said, but you have to, you're confronting it far more regularly. What are your thoughts about, and you know, not to sound morbid, but you've documented life. You're like the Sherpa of the decades here, leading all of us Jewish girls through our, our lives and what's important. And now I can't believe, first of all, that you're at this age, you look so young, but I'll just go, I'll just take you on your word that you are this old. And what? <laughs> uh, I'd like to answer that, if I may, by reading the last poem in the book. Please. Is that okay? That's okay with me. Because it's called My Legacy and it deals with these thoughts. Since it's looking as if my legacy isn't shaping up to be peace on earth and universal health care, here's what I'm hoping to be remembered for. Showing up when I say I'm showing up. Sticking with what I've started until it's done. Sending valentines to all the children in our family until they reach the age of 21 and never, ever leaving the house without eyeliner playing a relentless game of Scrabble, keeping the secrets I promised I would keep, being able to laugh about the bad things that happened to me, though not before I first whine and weep and rail against my fate and blame my husband, doing work I'm able to be proud of, making a truly transcendent matzo ball, coming to terms with mortality, though to be perfectly honest, I'm still not feeling all that thrilled about dying, coming to terms with not feeling thrilled about dying, watching over the people that I love, grateful they're watching over me as well, enjoying whatever there is to enjoy until that final time's up closing bell and hoping, just a reminder, that I'll be remembered. Those are my thoughts on mortality. <laughs> so beautiful. I love that. You're, I mean... Oh, you're so gifted. It's really nice to be able to hear you, to hear you say it. <laughs> One other question I had was, I want to hear a little more. You write so much about your husband and your love for him still and how sometimes sitting at a, at a you know, at the, at an Asian restaurant for dinner is, is just about the peace of being able to sit there and enjoy each other instead of the, the drama of younger romance and all of that. And you write about how you really don't want to be a widow and you write about how your relationship has changed over time. So as someone sort of on the other, on the earlier side of, of marriage, can you give any advice about how you two have weathered the decades together? How long have you been married? Well, I've already gotten divorced. I'm divorced and remarried, and I'm three years into my second marriage. So I guess I could use all the help I can get here <laughs> since I've already failed once. Good luck with it. Now, Milton and I were both married before, and we've had 60 years together and three children together and made every mistake and foolish choice and inability to resolve fights in a mature and intelligent way. But 
it's a work in progress. I think it will always be a work in progress. We've gotten better and better at it. And actually, uh, COVID-19 is a, a kind of an interesting test because here we are, here we are in the house together. We don't go anywhere except for walk around the neighborhood. And we find that the conversation we started enjoying with each other 60 years ago is still continuing, that we still enjoy reading the papers in companionable silence, and that a glass of his well-selected wine and a nice dinner by me is a lovely way to end the afternoon, and that we have many, many points of connection, and we treasure and protect the marriage. We know that this is something of value. And it's what I've called in some writings I've done, the third thing. It's not about him. It's not about me. It's about this marriage that we are creating together. And that sometimes when we're losing a fight or giving in on some issue, it's not I lost that or I'm compromising. It's we're feeding the marriage. And I think that the marriage as a creation, as something you make together, is a very, very valuable way to to think about what life is all about. Beautiful. And do you have advice also to aspiring authors? I mean, having a career like yours that has not waned at all, in fact, just gotten richer and deeper over the years is like a a dream come true for, for many authors out there. What's your advice on that? Do you, and how often, how often are you writing? Do you still write all the time? What does your writing life look like now? And, and what's the, you know, what advice can you get? Well, I think that somebody once asked me a long time ago, she said, I want to be a writer so badly, but I hate rejection. What should I do? I said, find another career (laughs) because because you're going to get a lot of rejection at every every stage of, of writing and you've got to be able to tolerate it. I had, when I went, when my uh, first book of poems came out, um, I submitted a second book of poems and it was turned down. When my ch- children's two children's book came out and then Alexander was rejected. Necessary Losses was rejected. It was a bestseller for two years, but it was initially rejected. And uh, right now I just sent in something I thought was pretty cute about COVID and kids and that was rejected. So you have to, you have, you have to always be able to stand the rejection. And for me, when people say, well, how did you keep writing? How'd you keep doing this? For me, it was simply a matter of, I did not know how not to write. I didn't know how not, not to write. What I'm writing now is nothing for publication, but I am writing the world's largest collection of emails and having large email exchanges. This seems to be the way good friends are communicating these days as we cover politics, the meaning of life and, and eyeliner, everything. So I'm still writing. I think it's gotten much, much harder to be a published writer. And I think you have to want to write, you better find some other means of financial support while you're trying to write. And if you need to write, you won't stop writing. That's great. That's excellent advice. And by the way, if it's a poem about kids and COVID, I started this new online magazine called We Found Time. 
only with people, authors who have been on my podcast, which now after this, you will have been, <laughs> as this will come out soon. So I'll publish it for you if you want. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I know that there are so many questions that have already come in, so I don't want to monopolize you. Maybe Marjorie can help. Uh, yes. Hi, thank you. You, you ask wonderful, warm questions and such a generous spirit. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Today's episode has been sponsored by Stylist. Please try out Stylist. Again, it's text to number 926-848 and text Zibby, capital Z, or go to stylist.com and try it out and let me know what you think. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.